Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford here with special co-host Willie Hicks. Hey, Willie. Good morning and hello all. So today, Willie, we welcome Patrick Johnson. He is the Director of the Workforce Innovation Directorate at DOD CIO. Patrick has spent his career in the DOD and is heavily involved now in the DOD's workforce portfolio and talent management programs. And we're really excited to hear Patrick's insights on how the DOD is creating the right balance between an effective cyber workforce and the use of technology, as well as the DOD's plans when it comes to automation. This topic right now, I feel like every leader that we talk to, Willie, in the government, when we ask them what keeps them up at night, this is in their top three, right? Agree. yep. And so we've, we've got the expert here. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. I am I'm pleased to be able to uh, engage on this topic and I'm excited to be here. Well, like I said, we're super excited to have you and I want to start off by talking about the DoD cyber workforce strategy that came out this year. Um, you've talked about how the department's path forward will emphasize an enterprise-wide talent management approach for all of DoD's cyber workforce. In your opinion, what are the key factors in creating the right balance between an effective workforce and an effective use of technology in securing your digital systems? So that's a, a really good question. And right now, the department's uh, cyber workforce, and we say total force because that includes military, uh, our industry partners as contractors, and our civilians, is about 225,000. And of that, where we have kind of the, the biggest lag is in our civilian workforce. And that's about 75,000 in terms of how we approach that. And one of the problems as we bring new technologies online, you're familiar with zero trust, how we're driving that in endpoint security and the other aspects of that. Well, it's great to put new technology on the table, but if you don't take the time to train the workforce you have in the in the programs or the systems you're bringing online, you lose that effectiveness. And you don't, you don't really gain um, the efficiencies or the objectives that you need to be. So it's about training and upskilling. I like the word upskilling as opposed to reskilling because reskilling implies I'm gonna take you from one place and put you in a completely different widget and, and have you just take off. That rarely works in the civilian workforce because they have to go back to the beginning. Uh, it really is about looking at your talent and your gaps and then giving them the training they need to execute the new technology uh, appropriately. So you have to balance that and look at it. Um, one of the things I like to say is nobody has enough, enough people and we should not be afraid of automation. And automation comes in a lot of different forms, but we as a department are looking at what AI can play in that, in that realm. There is a security concern as we unleash AI into our environment, because this is a very protected and guarded environment, but it shouldn't deter us from bringing that to the fore. 
Because if you look at a cybersecurity um, uh, analyst or a defender, and they're focused on you know the the basics, there's a lot of what I call attention to detail nug work. You cannot expect a human being to catch every detail. It's how do you partner with uh, the automated process, the AI process that goes through that and highlights the anomalies you should be looking at and then expedite that to help you be better at your job to catch more of the uh, threats and intrusions that are coming through. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of fear around AI. Like I was just having a conversation with a friend who she's a child psychologist. So she did her PhD. She did a lit review for her PhD. And she's like, I just found out that chat GPT can do a lit review in minutes to do what took her seven years. And she's like, that is very unsettling to me. It feels really threatening. And I'm like, well, let's talk, let's unpack that a little bit because what chat GPT can do is all that rote stuff that you were just talking about, Patrick, right? That's right. And it can do it better than we can do it. Like it can find those, those details and gather them for you. And now you can spend your time in the creative process, in the um, really putting the human side to it and making it something amazing. So chat GPT or any uh, generative AI compiles all of this stuff that took you seven years to research and now think about the possibilities. And that's, that's exactly how I look at it. Um, if you look at some of the things Microsoft is doing and others, their approach isn't um, saying AI is in the forefront. It's about partnerships. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really is looking at AI as kind of your wingman or uh, mm, I love that. Wanna, AI is our wingman, Willie. Yeah. That is so, awesome. <laughs> I think it's that one too. <laughs> and I, I, I think when you when you when you stop and think about it, you know, she she was like, you know, I'm going to be replaced. It, it was able to go through all of this. AI can do a lot of things and do it really well. And I like to call that the uh, the nug work, the stubby pencil, the things that are tedious that we spend way too much time on and not enough time on the creativity portion of that in terms of what has to be thought through, what actions need to be taken next. So AI can expedite that and, and to do it really fast. Um, I understand the, the angst having uh, in the 80s, I worked in uh, industry in terms of I watched computerized machining uh, come online and suddenly you didn't need 10 people to do one task you only needed two or three. That doesn't necessarily mean that those 10 are now uh, out of work. It's about how do you fit in and use the technology that is there. So for individuals that are bent on just being one thing or doing a particular way, it's going to be a struggle. You have to look at it. And I, I like the term wingman. Don't don't think of it as a threat, but think of it as a, a multiplier. And for those that have been reluctant to use it, you need to sit down and, and play with it. It's it's out there. Right now, DOD, we can't bring it into our ecosystem, but that hasn't stopped me in my, my personal life. Or when we have the uh, chief data or chief digital and artificial intelligence officer, that organization, they're steering hard at that's the one of their primary missions. So we're looking at how do we incorporate this and move things along. And it, it goes back to um, 
I'm looking at the various positions and you go across to an organization and I've never went to an organization where they said, we have enough people. We have actually the, the, the number we need to perform the mission. Everybody's short. This, this is like adding a, a, a person to a person a half to your staff uh, right off the bat. And it boosts your productivity if, if used correctly. Uh, it, it is it is interesting because I have a lot of these conversations as well with leaders across, you know, DOD and, and our civilian agencies. And I think everyone is speaking, you know, at the, the CIO level, at the CISO level, they're all kind of speaking the same thing that they understand that to your point, and I, I use the same verbiage that it, it is a force multiplier. And, um, you know, communicating that down to all the layers, making sure everyone understands that, understands that, you know, to your point, this is not new. AI itself. No, it is not. But but these concepts are not new. I can go back 100 plus years and you can look at the advent of the steam engine. You can look at a lot of technologies that have come out and people are like, Oh, this is going to do away with every you know all the people that we employ riding horses, you know, delivering mail. This is going to do away with all the people who are you know building these first you know cars on the assembly line when we get robotics. All of these things happen, but what people forget is that oh, now we need people who can maintain the steam engines. Now we need people who can maintain the robots. Mm -hmm that are building these cars. And you know what? Those are actually been higher paying jobs. Those are even more critical jobs because they are, you know, these become, you know, critical parts of the, the company's infrastructure or the agency's infrastructure. So I, you know, I, I think that anyone I speak with, I'm like, we should embrace this and that, you know, you shouldn't worry that this idea, this this generative AI, you know, what we call chat, G I think everybody thinks chat GPT, they think that's kind of the, the technology. I know. This GPT, no. that this generative technology is so far away from what I would call general AI, because I think what you just kind of talked about is that this is really just kind of doing all the menial, I don't like to say menial tasks, but these are all the well, little, not, not menial. but yeah, but, but, menial. <laughs> yeah, but but the, these tasks are um, are not creative tasks, and computers and AI it, it, it's so far away from a computer that can actually have creativity, that can have almost you know you 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 start thinking sci-fi when you start thinking about like you know computers that could actually take jobs and be creative and do you know write symphonies and do these things. they can simulate they can take a lot of data and make a facsimile but that's not creativity and i think that's what i always try to encourage people that though that that is a you know i don't like to say i'm a predictor of the future but i can say we barely know what consciousness is from a scientific standpoint we are far away from actually recreating that in a computer if that makes sense okay let me go off no, on a really quick tangent here have you guys seen guardians of the galaxy 3 <laughs> <laughs> I have, yes. Have you seen it, Patrick? I, I have not. I have not seen it. Patrick, come on. So <laughs> I just recently saw it and I was talking to an author. He did some stuff on 5G and like why we should worry about, you know, what China's doing with AI, what China's doing with 5G. And then his point his his silver silver lining or hope or whatever was just that what we have here in America is creativity innovation 
So coming back to Guardians of the Galaxy 3, uh, the bad guy, that is like he quotes John Pelson almost word for word. This is what differentiates us. We can create, we can innovate. We're not just copying. We're not just doing the facsimile. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. And I think also, uh, you know, our 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 motivations are, are I think, are different. I think that's also what drives us like, you know, uh, and and we will not get into politics on on this podcast, but I, I will say, you know, a lot of times I worry because, um, and this is way going off on the tangent, but we do this from time to time. But, you know, in, in other countries, I'll say where AI is really being, you know, utilized for, you know, better understanding what the people are doing, understanding, you know, um, and monitoring people and how they're behaving and how they're, you know. Yeah. That, that is, you know, that I think that how we are looking at AI, how we can use it to enable us to augment our, our capabilities so we can actually leap to that next, you know, to, to kind of leapfrog in our, our kind of next era of technology. I, I think that's kind of also what makes us different in the AI. I know a lot of people worry about, you know, um, losing the AI race to other, you know, other countries, other adversaries. But, you know, I still believe that that's one thing that kind of sets us apart. That's just my personal opinion. No, I, I, there there's an ethical piece to this. And uh, obviously, uh, our chief digital and artificial intelligence office and that, that, that uh, principal staff assistant is really looking hard at the ethical use of AI. Mm-hmm. And yes, I would say some of our peer competitors without naming anybody, they're not really worried about the ethical aspect of it. No. And in a, um, a the Western society, the society, the, the order that we have operated in for almost 90 years in, the, in a, a very prosperous, peaceful way, um, it is concerned about that. And it, it goes back to, you know, what what I said earlier in, you know, it's easier to correct than create. And mm-hmm. AI is, is really great about giving us that that framework to seize upon and then begin to put our creative mind to it and say, now, what can I do with this? How can I change this? And if we ask AI to solely create something, it's simply, as you said, it's, it's regurgitating those things. Mm-hmm. So looking at it, using it for creativity and enhancing our, our capability. I think that is one of our strengths as a, as a nation. I think for the, uh, the, the Western model, uh, that innovation, that, that free thinking, I think that is a, a powerful advantage. And I'm not saying it doesn't occur in other systems, but it's, it's often not allowed to prosper and uh, find its full voice and capability. Uh, there's Talk always about- a, an ulterior means to the, to the state or to the party. So Patrick, talk about how you're using, and and since we're on the AI topic, talk about how you're using AI to better the workforce. Um, so, you mentioned it as a key factor. So, so for for right now, and um, you know, truth in lending, we have not let AI into into the ecosystem, but we're using it enclosed, and so and that's really. Uh, on the uh, chief digital and artificial intelligence officer's side of the house, how mm. they're using it to e- improve everything for maintenance schedules when mm. we need to do particular things and how to kind of track and monitor certain certain issues. 
So it's just now they're running different different capabilities to see where it fits within the department, how we can best use it. So we're really at the infancy of that and we're embracing it as opposed to um, saying, no, no, we don't, we don't want to touch that. So I would love to give you a lot more examples, but it really is, we're still feeling our way around. We're saying we've got this great technology, we recognize the potential, and our congressional leadership is also pushing, we need you to move faster. So that is what the department is, is focused on, and how can we do it, not just ethically, but safely, so it doesn't create security risks for our systems and, and, and other, other ways. So I would love to say we're we're blazing trails in this, and we are in certain aspects, but I can't really talk about that here. But but you're using it for those rote menial tasks that we mentioned earlier. You just said schedule. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how many hours is involved in scheduling, right? And you're using AI to help with that. So you know, and it it does it does expedite things, and we're constantly looking at processes. So for right now, uh, how how we're employing it in the human capital arena is I'm using AI to expedite how I acquire talent, how we match applicants with the jobs that are needed, how we keep the process you know, going and engaged. Um, oftentimes when uh, you apply to a federal job, it's done through a, a particular system that is kind of a post and pray approach and it really discourages applicants. How can we uh, expedite that? How can we look at, for example, um, different training offering, offerings, uh, certifications and others? How does that align? Can I do that manually? Yep, it takes three to six months to do the, that kind of work. Or I can automate that using AI and the large language model. This is outside of, you know, it's GP, but not GPT chat for, you mm-hmm. know, enclosed and expedite that so I can go through thousands of offerings and align them to the different things that I want to on the work role side of the house. And we haven't even talked about the work roles and kind of how we're using that to manage the workforce. So we're doing that. We're, we're doing that now in terms of looking at training offering offerings and certifications using AI to match that up to the qualifications we have. So I can not accredit it, uh, uh, an offering, but validate that it aligns to uh, mm-hmm. my requirements. Um, that's already starting to uh, pay dividends for us. So, so I had a question, and um, you know, I, I just kind of bouncing around ideas. I'm, I'm maybe going back just a tick, but we've, you know, we've been having a fantastic conversation about the technology now and the workforce and how we can best integrate that. Um, maybe if I could just take a step back because I, I want to understand. Um, you know, in this, and you mentioned like your congressional partners and so forth, I'm sure there is, there are a lot of people who want to understand, you know, how, what is the impact on these programs? Okay, so we're bringing in this technology, we're talking about AI and so forth. So how do you continuously kind of measure the impact of of these programs and making sure that you are maintaining kind of that right balance between the workforce and the technology that you're bringing in? And, you know, something that we were talking about earlier, I wanted to bring in too, is that, you know, kind of even before you get there to that point of the measurements, have you baseline the, have you kind of baseline the workforce to understand where they're at? Oh, that's a really good question. I know we kind of went off in multiple directions, so mm-hmm. this this will kind of help focus things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what we did is we looked at the um, uh, the cyberspace workforce, 
And traditionally, when we talk about cyber, everybody says cybersecurity, but the cyberspace domain is much more vast than that. And there's an AI piece to that. There's a software engineering piece to that. Um, there is a, a data model specific to that. There are offensive and defensive cyber operations, which are completely outside of what you normally encounter. And how do you manage that and feed it? And all that kind of builds on itself. So the first thing we did was um, basically we had worked with NIST and NICE to help develop the NICE framework. And we took that work and expanded it with the Defense Cyber Workforce Framework, because we do things in the department that aren't necessarily done throughout uh, throughout the federal government. For example, we are the only ones that can legally operate offensive operations against a peer component or a, a non-state actor. All right. So when you look at that, we developed our work roles. Is that what you mean? What's that? I'm just, I'm trying to interpret those words that you just said. You're the only one that can do offense. Is it war games? No, no, it's not not war games. Offensive. When we say offensive operations, where we take actual uh, action, offensive action uh, against uh, against a, a, a an enemy of the United States. Okay. So if if there is a terrorist organization that is doing something, we can actually go after to shut down their networks. That that type of thing. Then that's okay. a hypothetical. So I don't want to yes. get myself in trouble. Yeah, understood. Understood. Yeah, yeah. So when, when looking at this, we looked at our work roles and we started looking at how do we measure and how do we decide what you need to do? So we focus not on so much competencies, which tends to be the traditional model. We focus on the work that actually is done and it's task oriented. And really, when we talk about knowledge, skills and ability, it's just another word for competency, but it is focused on the end task. And the idea is to get to where you can demonstrate performance in the job. And ultimately, you're aligned to this is the work we need you to do. Code that entire workforce. And right now we have coded about 158,000 military and civilian contractors, a little hard to do. So we've identified that workforce where it's at. We've identified the capability and we have something called the 8140 qualification program. And that qualification then program is designed then to make sure that they have the skill sets necessary to perform. And so we can track that and we're building out that tracking mechanism right now. So that's a good as is. So now you add to that. And if you go back to the strategy, career paths and career pathing and others, you've got your as is. You can see where you have nodes of skill spread around the department. The department is vast. It's a, a pretty big setup. And you can decide, do I have excess in one particular area and how does that align to what I need? So I can look at the various work roles and this process of using work roles and how we update it. We can update faster than basically DOD systems and services can keep up with it. We can do it on a quarterly basis. Right now, we have to kind of slow our roll, let the systems and, and uh, the services catch up to it. So it's about every six months. But that's a much more uh, adaptive and flexible, responsive uh, process to the workforce than, say, traditional occupational series, which can take years to add or change. We can go back to the stakeholders because technology changes rapidly. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're, we're looking at it. That's how we're managing it right now. We even incentivize not by occupational series, but I incentivize by by work roles. 
So if I have a critical skill set, I can identify that skill set, um, the work that needs to be done, and incentivize that work. And that actually saves me money. And how it does that, uh, traditionally, you'll look at an occupational series and say, we're short, so I'm going to incentivize everybody. But by focusing on the disaggregated data, I can identify a subset of that occupational series because it's, I'm looking at the work they actually perform and target just that and achieve a much better result in terms of affecting vacancy rates and other things. Now, as we acquire more data, because the coding initiative uh, is still building strength, now we're going to be able to use it for predict predictive analysis and we'll be able to start projecting. Uh, here's a very, very simple example of that. If I'm looking at your attrition rates and your vacancy rates, your losses, your gains, I can also see how many people you're hiring in the course of a 12-month period. And we can track that. And there's there's a what we call a refresh rate. Are you bringing more people in in the course of 12 months than you're losing? And if you're losing more, even by one, you're going backwards, right? By any measure you put it. And people will argue severity of it. So, so I lost one more than I brought in. That has an impact because a lot of these skill sets, high training demand, and very hard to get, and you're not, you don't have 5,000 of them. So if you've only got 10 that do that, and you've got two that's not on the team, that's 20%. That's a significant effect. Mm -hmm. So being able to project that in real time for leadership, and this is some of the uh, things we're doing uh, in terms of the data realm, where I can put up in real time when I, when I have brief leadership, not with slides, but say, hey, if you do nothing right now in the next two years, you're your vacancy rate is going to go from 17% to 37%. You need to take action now. And it's about being proactive in, in that. And I envision also having a greater impact in terms of looking at the, the gap analysis in talent. So as we get everybody online and trained according to the standards, um, then start looking at it, what additional training do we need to bring in? And within the department, because the services have the responsibility to train, man, and equip, we have to work closely with them and give them the lead time to say, okay, now you need to ramp up and you probably need to be doing this. So it's not so much saying you will do. It's about being proactive, identifying issues and problems when they're small before they you know, turn into a raging fire and we can't tamp the stuff down. Um, I think that's the, the, the best way I can put it. Is part of your strategy to retain talent, you said that you're um, identifying skill sets. So if you, like, do you move people around a lot? Do you see people that will, they'll be in one job and you're like, yeah, but they have this really strong skill set over here. They have these interests over here. And so you shift them around. Is that part of the retention strategy? So that is part of the retention strategy. And we, um, you know, my boss, uh, Mark Gorak, um, he is the uh, principal deputy for um, resources and analysis, the, the DCO. I, he likes to say it, it isn't a competition, you know, because we do compete at some level uh, for talent with other federal agencies and then industry. Stop looking at it like that. And I absolutely agree. So the ability to move people around seamlessly between industry military and, and civilian workforce right now that's that's not that's not a thing um, I think of it as permeability 
that is part of the strategy. And we are looking at what legislative changes we would, would have to seek from Congress. Uh, but before we do that, what processes and authorities we currently possess, which would allow us to kind of do some of these things without going to somebody and saying, we're going to need more authorities or we're going to need more. So we are focused on that. When we talk about the strategy, it, um, it's based on four pillars. And the first one is uh, identification. And the second one is uh, recruitment. And then it's development and retention. And it has four goals underneath that. There are 38 uh, initiatives, 22 objectives. Nope. So it's expansive over a five-year period. Uh, it's designed to be uh, monitored and changed frequently. If something's not working, we'll go back. But if you're looking at our original four goals, the goal three is very simple. It says change the culture, all right? Change the culture of how we acquire talent. And within each one of the services, there is a unique culture and we value that. There's nothing wrong with those cultures. As a matter of fact, it is the strength of each one of the services and even our agencies have cultures. But the culture of how we acquire talent, that has to change, right? And we have to look at why can't we uh, take somebody on the military side and seamlessly transition over here? Or can we not send people out to industry seamlessly, bring industry in, exchange that? Um, we know that the traditional, certainly in this arena, and I think you probably both experienced this, the traditional 30-year career, you, you come to this place, you're going to stay here forever and ever. That is just not, it's not a thing no, anymore. It's not a thing right? anymore. And we have a lot of advantages working within the federal government, but the one thing we don't do is we penalize people who go outside of the system for any amount of time. It's like, oh, you, you don't want to be on the island anymore, so we're going to put up barriers for you to get back on the island. We need to rethink that, and it needs to be not only, hey, you're going over in the industry and you're leaving us. Well, we can't keep you. Great. How do we keep in touch with that person? How do we make it advantageous? at a later time, because they're going to acquire skills, they're going to acquire knowledge. If, if they decide they see an opportunity, how do we make it seamless so they can come back to us? Um, there's a lot of challenges there, but that's that's how we're looking at it. So right now, uh, most of our civilian employees, it's difficult to, to move them. I want to change that. And I think the department needs to change that over the next five years saying, hey, you're here. We really need you over here. How do we make that seamless or flow? Or how do we reach out in industry and, and bring surge in? You know, I was actually, um, you know, I was talking to Mark um, a, a few weeks ago back at at, um, at Billington. And, um, you know, one interesting thing he also brought up is that um, not only kind of making that seamless transition that you mentioned, but also uh, what I took away from it is almost kind of better marketing. Of, of, oh, kind of yes. you know, the the jobs that in the in the services and the DOD um, for civilians as well, you know, um, kind of better, you know, helping people understand really the benefits. Because um, sometimes, you know, people just think, oh, I, it's, it's going to be I can go to industry and make a much higher salary, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think, you know. From understanding, not just the the DOD, but all the agencies are looking at okay, how do we better compete um, for a, a very limited talent pool, but also how do we better market all the benefits that come with you know working for 
the army or air force or what have you. Um, and, and I always thought that was interesting because I actually, he was in schooling me. I didn't even realize you, how many benefits there, there were that came with, with some of these roles. There, there are, there, there are huge advantages, but I also recognize, you know, there's a time, time to stay. There's a time to go. We need to make that cyclical, you know, All right. it's not goodbye. There's going to be another opportunity. You got a job waiting for you here. We're interested. How do we keep that touch point? You know, on the military side of the house, everybody's seen the recruiting commercials, aim high and be all you can be, all right, you name it. Um, there's 30,000 people involved in that effort across the services. When we talk about civilian talent, there's only a couple hundred dedicated full time. And when was the last time you saw an advertisement for a DOD civilian, be part mm -hmm. of the civilian workforce? Mm -hmm. You have it. And it is a messaging but that doesn't mean there's not interest because this is a two-part equation. You need a better job of messaging. But we also, in terms of increasing talent pipeline, reaching out to our university partners in, in the academic world and bringing students in, we need to do a better job of creating entry-level and developmental positions for them to come to. Because when I go out to schools, I've got kids coming up to me all the time. How do I get into DOD's mission is interesting to me. How do I become part of the team? I've tried applying and it goes into a black hole and I never hear anything, right? That is also a paradigm because when we say we can't hire right out of school, we're just not competitive. That's not entirely true. I've got lots of, you know, uh, applicants that I don't necessarily have a place to send them right? because the, it's, it is disjointed. So this is part of that process of tying all this together, creating a talent marketplace um, of supply and demand and matching that together. And this is something that's going beyond the, the cyber workforce where uh, I don't know if you've heard about the new chief talent management officer. Uh, that's Mr. Uh, uh, Brent Parmeter that was uh, appointed to that. But the department is looking at this model also across other functional communities. In other words, it, it'll work if it works for cyber. Why wouldn't it work for aviation or why wouldn't it work for logistics? It's going to work for just about any approach you want to take, you know, identify your skill set, what work do we need, identify your gaps, right? And then start building pipelines, not a pipeline, but pipelines of how you acquire this talent. And this also neatly fits with the, the, the president's management, you know, management agenda in terms of the workforce and what, what they're putting out. We've got people, we've got talent. And I think we talked about it earlier. One of our advantages in terms of our, our creativity, our, our diversity, let's capitalize on this. Let's go hunt for talent in places we generally have it, right? Doesn't mean you're, you're automatically giving anybody anything. We're just going to where the talent is. If you have uh, one of the, the, the largest uh, imbalances in our workforce, especially in this area, women, we're short, right? How do we, how do, we do that? How about we go to where they are, right? Mm -hmm. Go to where they are. We don't have to do anything else. You can argue uh, different points, but let's just start with, let's go talk to where they are. Let's go find them and put the message out that not only are we hiring, but we value your talent and we'd like you to be part of the team. And that so applies you... across any one of, of the areas we're, we're looking at. So Tell that's me. that's part of the push. What are the incentives to come work for government? I mean, it's hard to well, look past... The money. I'm just going to be crass. You're, you're right. Let's just Matter talk fact, about the money. Um, we have a we we have an authority under um, the DoD for the cyber accepted service, and I'm looking 
um, had some information on there. And one of the biggest complaints, you know, people list about 60% of the people you talk to, money is a factor. But if you start digging into that, money's not the only factor. Let's, let's first deal with some facts. If you're working for the federal government, we are never going to compete with the highs of industry. We're just not. But at the same token, if you take an Amazon, let's, let's just start with Amazon. So not everybody in Amazon is making 230000 plus a year either. All right. So when you start comparing this across industry, their cream of the crop, kind of what they're targeting, they do pay them well. But at the same token, let's take a software developer or a software engineer. Take your pick. I like to say a software developer has the lifespan of a, of a goldfish. It's kind of the half-life <laughs> because they'll work very hard for two or three years and then technology, they've got to be refreshed. And mm. so a lot of the things, the times if you cross over to industry, you'll find yourself uh, on call working, you know, 14, 16 hour days. Um, you're getting paid for it, but that kind of distorts work-life balance. Mm -hmm. uh, you get stock options and that is great as long as the stocks are riding high. When they're not riding high, suddenly it doesn't look so great. So if you're looking at crossing into the civilian world, some of the advantages, at least within the department, and these are also true for our federal agencies, we're the only ones left that offer a fixed annuity, right? So you guaranteed a certain amount in terms of retirement. Everything else is tied to a 401k. And we know the pitfalls mm -hmm. that, that go with that. And we can argue about it's your money. You should be able to do what you want. That's true. We also have a TSP, which gives you that aspect combined with that work-life balance. You know, we're not going to work you 12, 14, or 16 hours without compensation. And it's it's looked at in terms of- You know, of and when I first started my career, that work-life balance thing, I did not, it was just a, it was just a term, right? And Correct. now, man, that is the number one thing for me. And what I'm hearing you say, so you're saying like government offers stability, a career path, on-the-job training, a solid retirement plan, work-life balance. So those are my my and buzzwords. Medical. As a marketer, I'm pulling out my buzzwords. And medical. Oh, you're correct. And if, if you look on the medical side of the house, so the exchange we operate in, mm. this is separate from the federal mm -hmm. exchange. Mm -hmm. You're not going to find a better deal unless you're with Congress um, on the medical front. And that is critical because the average American family is paying about $1,200 to $1,500 a month in health insurance for a family of four. That's crap, that's, by the way. That's staggering <laughs> and not, not necessarily getting the best plan. So I can I can line those advantages up. Look, I actually had a, an offer to go and work on the commercial side of the house, and it was a significant bump up in pay. But when I looked at what I would have to set aside to make up for what is lost, you're looking at between forty and sixty thousand mm -hmm. dollars that you think you're not getting, but you are. Mm -hmm. Now that's not the end all, be all, and there are opportunities on the outside. And I'm not saying leave, but if you're asking, well, what are some of the advantages? Give us a try, and see for yourself. Yeah. There are some good things over here, um, and our mission is really dynamic. We've got some areas where we are doing things that impact the nation and outside of the nation at the international level. You could get that at Walmart, kind of, or you could get that uh, at Microsoft, but are you really going to do that yeah. in such small numbers in, in 
at a national level, that kind of significance. The mission, the the job satisfaction, feeling like you're actually really making a difference. That's also a super big deal to me. I'm putting on my my corporate hat right now and just thinking, you know, I I speak always about, um, you know, public-private partnerships and how... uh, you know, we as, you know, as private industry, we really need to be partnering more with the government. And as I'm listening to you, I'm like, this is a place where we also should be partnering because oh, yeah. I can see the importance of kind of both ways. You're you're kind of talking about pulling people from industry, but at least I, I represent our public. I also want to send them out. Yeah. So, so that was my point. And I, some of my best employees have come from government. They were either contractors or they were veterans and they they have, you know, it's not just about the clearances and so forth they carry, but also they carry knowledge and, you know, um, um, just a different mindset that we need infused into, at least from a public sector, but I would say corporate wide, um, we, we are, we value our veterans. We better value a lot of our government employees that come and work for the company. And I think it needs to be both ways. I mean, we should be able to easily you know, accept, you know, people from the services from the government because they are they they bring such value to our company. But also when people leave, I I almost I I've had a couple of my my engineers who have gone back over to the government side. And I'm like, I hate to lose you, but actually you're valuable to me over there too, because now you're teaching you know, uh, others about what we do here. I think I, it's just, I, I don't think companies are thinking about it that way, but I, I think it should be something we're we're talking about from the industry and a, uh, a government standpoint. So absolutely agree. And that goes back to what I was talking about permeability. Um, I would like to kind of flip the supply and demand. I want to flood the market with supply, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of tamp down some of that demand. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with training people and having them go out to industry. Because they're going to say, I got my start in the department. And I'm even more okay with having them come back later because you're going to acquire skills through industry that I can't give you. All right. You're in terms of some of the innovation that's happening there. We may be dragging our feet a bit on a security issue. I can then bring you back and you can expedite that process. So I see it very much as a partnership. Look, there's depending on what you're looking at, up to 700,000 vacancies in this area. It's a national problem. It's not just a DOD problem. It's at the federal level. It's at the national level. And we won't solve it with one actor taking the lead and saying, oh, we've got this. We've got the answers. Not so. And it is a partnership between the department, our industry partners, the defense industrial base, and all that supports that. And then looking at our, our, our military and our civilian workforces. And that is how we'll get after it, trying to interchange and share that talent, share that, share that knowledge instead of, you know, no, this is this is the way we do it. If you don't fit into the picture, you're not part of the uh, solution. We can't operate that anymore. And it's about breaking down those barriers to ensure that we can partner uh, with the industry. Um, I think we're doing some of that now, but we can do a whole lot better job moving moving forward. Mm. Yeah, well, your passion is is evident and exactly what we need to make well, it better for all of us. So, but we can't let you leave without our tech talk questions. So, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, Patrick, um, what's your favorite Thanksgiving Day tradition? If you if you celebrate 
Thanksgiving or any holiday. Yeah, yes, I, I, I do celebrate. <laughs> and uh, as William mentioned, we're both from Alabama. So for for me, Thanksgiving is, is, is intensely family affair. Um, you know, gotten to the point of life that not as many family members are, are still there. But when we come together, Thanksgiving always means uh, really reacquainting ourselves with immediate family, very, very deep traditions. And then the Auburn Alabama game is normally played <laughs> right, right, right following after that. So it's all the all the family gets together and they're different camps. And I've got uh, Auburn grads and Alabama grads and uh, great, wonderful Thanksgiving, reacquainting with family. And then we go to war on a, a, a certain a certain weekend in November at the end. Family divided. It always happens. <laughs> It always nice. happens. So I can't think, I'm, I'm sorry. Some people may think I'm weird. I cannot think of Thanksgiving in terms of that family environment immediately after, you know, you have Black Friday and then it goes right into uh, the Iron Bowl. And it's, to me, it's synonymous. So um, I always like to know kind of, you know, just kind of what's the, the one technology you would love to see as a, a kind of a Black Friday grab this year? You know, and I'm, I'm a little disappointed it hasn't advanced more, but VR, virtual reality. And I think um, it's still kind of, uh, you know, it's gamification. And yep. even yeah. then, it's, it's kind of limited. Have so you I played like the Star it. Wars virtual reality game? It's, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. It's so fun and so funny <laughs> to watch, like, the other people play. But I, I agree. The virtual reality... I was even thinking about like doing the upgrade this year. <laughs> well, there's, uh, I'm sorry to bring work back into it, but there's so many training implications. So yes, uh, I would love to see it take a, a quantum leap forward. Well, you are, you were already reading my mind because I was going to say the same thing. Um, I, we were just, I was just talking about this, how, you know, VR is really, today is really about gaming, augmented reality and so forth. But um, from a training standpoint, from a government standpoint, I, I, mm. I see a future, a near future where, you know, um, government services might be, you know, VR based or, you know, I go to a museum, I put on some goggles and I'm in a battlefield and I'm walking down, you know, seeing yeah. there you go all right well patrick thank you so much for taking time uh to talk to us thank you for going off the rails with us <laughs> so. you guys are great <laughs> I've, I've never i've never had a, a a talk like this where we we kind of moved around in so many different areas so i i enjoyed it so will you have your homework you got guardians of the galaxy 3 to watch <laughs> <laughs> look into star wars vr for christmas um but uh, thank you so much. It's been a great, uh, fun hour. Thanks, listeners, for joining. Please smash that like button. Share this episode. We will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.